Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We are uh, looking at the anatomy of a fall. That is uh, King Saul's decline from a person who did what he's supposed to do, a person of integrity, a person uh, who listens to the Spirit, a person who's guided by the Spirit. Uh, back in chapter 11, we saw him carry out his role as a king exactly as he should have. Uh, but uh, as many of you know, by the time we get to the end of 1 Samuel, he is a man who does not even recognize God, does not even acknowledge or know what is right and what's wrong, and, and in fact is ascribing uh, evil to God and, and swearing its protection by God. Um, so how did he get there? How, what journey did he undertake to get him from this place of, of good standing to this place of, of really almost complete separation from God and God's desires? Well, that plays out for us in chapters 13, 14, and 15. And we've already looked at chapters 13 and 14. We looked in chapter 13 how uh, Saul there uh, allowed sin to begin to take root uh, in his life, uh, failing to recognize the need for repentance, failing to recognize the, uh, the dangers of letting uh, sin and greed and um, selfishness um, uh, take hold in his life. And then last week we looked in chapter 14 as he sought to replace his relationship with God with something that was more mechanical, where he was going through the steps, doing the things that he thought he was supposed to do in terms of um, carrying out uh, a holy war, carrying out God's actions and God's activities, but um, they failed and actually they led him farther away because he wasn't listening to God. He was doing what he desired and what he uh, thought was right. There was no authenticity to what he was uh, declaring, what he was expressing there. And so today we come to the final step in the fall uh, in chapter 15, and it is uh, his activity of sacrifice without obedience. And it's in this exchange between him and Samuel, that we really see the role of prophet to king. We, we, we first hear the prophetic credo that Samuel uh, will uh, record for us at the end of this. And we, we encounter that final step, that final expression of his journey away from God. So let's look, and we're going we're gonna to jump through chapter 15. We're not going to read all of it, but I want to focus in on, on just a few passages here that that I believe encapsulate uh, the contents thereof. Beginning in verse 1, So Samuel told Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill the men, the women, the infants, nursing babes, the oxen, the sheep, the camels, and the donkeys. Jumping down to verse 7. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag of Amalek alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, and the choice animals as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did 
destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel replied, Then what is the sound of sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? Moving on to verse 22. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. and To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we look at this passage this morning, that you would instruct, enlighten, help us, Lord, to um, see the message that you would have for each one of us here. Help us to be responsive to what you reveal in your word and what you relate to our hearts and minds. And Lord, we pray that you bless this time and use it for your glory, for your purposes. In Christ's name. So Samuel here focuses on the relationship between sacrifice and obedience. What exactly is going on here? And I think it's helpful as we start here to, to, to kind of define what I mean by these terms, what, what we're going to be looking at and what, what Samuel has in mind. So the first, sacrifice, to suffer loss of, to give something up for, to die for someone or something you value. Okay, so there's, there's two aspects to sacrifice here. There's the, the giving up part. That's the part where you give something that matters to you. But there's also the doing for part. And that is that you're doing it for someone else or in relationship to somebody else or connected to somebody else. Sacrifice is there for what? It's a relational concept. It's a concept that, that again, it's not just a ritual. It's not just a rite. It has uh, a relational characteristics to it. It's about our connection to those around us. It's about our connection to God. It's about our relationship to ourselves even, how we view ourselves and how uh, we understand our role. As Christians, uh, we see sacrifice through two lenses. Number one, the sacrifice of Jesus, that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the one through his death who has bought uh, our, our well-being, who has bought our relationship with God. He has what? He has sacrificed himself. He gave up his glory to come and dwell amongst us. To live as we live, to suffer hardships, persecution, temptation, just as we do. Yet he did not sin. And because he did not sin, when he died, he was the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Paying the price we could never pay. But the second, half, or second part of sacrifice for Christians is what? The life we live. Paul tells us what? To be living sacrifices. That is to what? To live lives of worship. 
where we acknowledge that Christ, that, that God is over us and higher than us and more important than us and significant. We live for him and want to live a life of selflessness toward others. We sacrifice sometimes our rights. We sacrifice sometimes our, our, um, our, our privileges, some of the things that we've been granted for the sake of others. That's sacrifice that we're talking about here today. And then, of course, is obedience. And obedience, we need to understand that obedience from a biblical standpoint is not just doing the right thing, but having the right heart as you do the right thing. There is a, a, a commitment in Scripture that our attitude follow our actions or precede our actions. They, they're intertwined. It's not enough to simply do the right thing from a biblical standpoint. This is a, a big part of what Jesus is saying in Sermon on the Mount when he talks about adultery and murder and so forth and how it's linked not just to the action of adultery and murder, but what? To our heart, lust and hatred. There's an attitude behind it. And I want us to understand this morning that, number one, it's not too hard. Obedience is not too hard. John writes in 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we, what? We keep his commandments, that we obey. But listen to this, and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. John is saying what? That our relationship with God that is reflected in our obedience is not burdened to us. It's not too hard for us. And that's such an important realization because I hear people all the time, say, and I slip into this myself, saying, well, you know, I'm only human. You know, I'm, I'm bound to make mistakes. Okay, we'll talk about that here in just a second. But when you're in relationship to somebody, when you love somebody, when you're connected to somebody, doing right by them is what? It's not a burden, it's a joy. I mean, this is true uh, in our work life. You know, find the job. That you love so that what? You never work a day of your life. You've heard that saying, I'm sure. But there's also just that interpersonal connection, you know, our, our love life, our, uh, our, our that significant other or whatever. We, we have what? We have a joy in doing those things. We love to please them. We love to see them smile. We, we love to, to hear them laugh. We love to, to, to see them enjoying life. And if we can do something to further that along, then we're happy to do so. And we love God. And he is everything to us the way he should be everything to us. Then obedience to him is not a, it's not a burden. It's a joy. There is peace and happiness and contentment and fulfillment. Excitement and seeing God glorified and honored in our life. And so those two realizations are, are really at the core of the exchange between Samuel and Saul here. So let's talk just a little bit about what sacrifice is supposed to do. 
What is it supposed to accomplish? Why is it a part of our relationship with God? Have you, you ever wondered that? Have you ever asked, why kill animals? Why did Jesus have to die? Why is sacrifice so central to our relationship with God? From Israel's sacrifices to Christ's sacrifice, it is the heart of how fallen, sinful man relates to God. Why? What, what goes into it? What is behind this practice, behind this activity that God has called us for? Well, there are several reasons that are, are outlined for us in Scripture. Let's look at some of them. Number one, sacrifice reminds us of how costly sin is. We have a disposition towards sin. It's called the sinful nature. And having that disposition towards sin makes sin much more enjoyable. Makes it much more desirable for us. That's the reason we're constantly moving toward it, constantly experiencing, constantly struggling with it. Because sin is fun. We like it. Since the fall, that has been part of our makeup. And so if there were not something in the equation in terms of our relationship with God that reminded us that sin is deadly, that sin is hurtful, that sin is damaging, that, that sin has a cost to it, we would go off into enjoying sin without giving it a second thought. So part of what sacrifice does is it says, you know what? That animal died because of my sin. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the blameless one, died because of my sin. My sin is what put him on the cross. And that brings to our mind, that brings to our heart a, a, a notion of recognition of the costliness of our rebellion. You add into that the, the reality that for sacrifice to be sacrificed, it what? It has to cost the giver something. Otherwise, it's not a sacrifice, is it? Going back to our definition of sacrifice, it, it's what? It's giving something that matters to us? And if we're giving something up, if we're, if we're acknowledging that, if we're, if we're seeing our connection with Christ on the cross that, that Paul calls us to see, we're what? We're seeing the precious one. The Holy Savior. The lover of our souls. The one who gave, it, gave us everything. We're seeing him on the cross. And that cost us something. That then should cause us in some ways to, to see the steep price of sin. Along with that, the second thing sacrifice is supposed to do is it's supposed to reveal how valuable God is. The price we pay not only speaks to how serious sin is, but how much we value our relationship with God. As we give, 
whether it's the animals of old or we give of ourselves or we sacrifice something of our privileges or our rights today, we're saying what? God is more important than those things. God is more important than my wealth. God is more important than this animal that could have fed my family. God is more important than, than anything else in my life. I'm willing to give all that I have. That's the picture you get with Abraham and Isaac when God says, I want you to take Isaac, your only son, to a place that I'll show you, and I want you to offer him back. Remember, we've talked about this before, that Isaac wasn't just his son, and that's a big deal. Being his son's a big deal. Saying to God, you know what, God? You're more important to me than even my child. That's huge. But Isaac goes even beyond that. Isaac's what? Isaac is every promise God has ever made to Abraham. Every promise. The great land, the great nation, the great name, they're all wrapped up in that little boy. And so in that act, in that moment, in that decision, Abraham's not just saying, God, you're more important to me than my son. As big a deal as that is, he's saying what? God, you're more important to me than anything else. Even my own standing before you. God, you're the most important. Sacrifice is also then meant to express our commitment to God. It's a risk to give what you have to God. You're taking a chance. You're taking a risk when you sacrifice something. In the olden days, again, in the Old Testament, it was a risk to, to give that animal or whatever. What are you saying? You're saying when you do it, God, I'm committed to your provision and to your ways. I know that even as I give this, I know you're going to take care of me. So it's an expression of, of trust in him. And most sacrifices that were committed in the Old Testament, the people got part of it. That is, a part of the animal would go on the altar, and then a part of the animal would go to the giver, too. The only offering that did not do that was uh, the whole burnt offering. And I think that's a reflection about how good God is. That even as he asks us to trust him, he's what? He's already giving it back to us. He's already fellowshipping with us. He's already connecting with us. He's not a selfish, greedy God. He's a, he's a, he's a giver, an abundant giver. That even as he calls for our sacrifice, he gives us his. Fourth is to bring atonement. Every sacrifice, every offering, even the grain offering in the Old Testament has atonement language. And what's atonement? It's actually a made-up word. When William Tyndale was, was translating the Old Testament, and he came upon the Hebrew word kipper, he noted that there really wasn't a single English word that communicated that Hebrew thought. So he said, 
I'll make one up. And he did. And you can break it down just by looking at it. It's the art or the status of being at one. At one mint. Mint being the suffix of status. So it's the status of being at one. So what is sacrifice? It's, it's the act of connecting us, making us at one with God. It's meant to connect us. It's meant to relate us to him. It's meant to help us to see who he is. And along with that, sacrifice is designed to communicate repentance. All of these other elements come together to do what? To, to draw us to change our behavior, to move in a different direction, to turn away from the sin that caused the need for the sacrifice in the first place. To ultimately discover and to, to realize and to live out our oneness, our connection with God. So with all that said, why does God desire obedience more than sacrifice? Why does Samuel say here that that's a part of the reality, part of God's disposition toward these two entities. Why, why is obedience more important than sacrifice? Is sacrifice supposed to do all those things? Why? Number one, because obedience gives meaning to sacrifice. If you're truly expressing your commitment to God and how valuable God is and, and how costly sin is and all that, then what? Then obedience is that which is the outgrowth of all of those intentions of sacrifice. It is the, the outward manifestation of these internal realities that are supposed to be happening. Secondly, we recognize that sacrifice can be done without obedience, but obedience can never be done without sacrifice. I can carry out the ritual of sacrifice. I can even, if we're not even talking about ritual, I'm just talking about my life. I can say, well, I'm going to give up this or I'm going to do that. We see it all the time. Couple uh, about a month ago or so, we we went through the season of Lent, right? And Lent is what? Lent is the expression of sacrifice. What did you give up for Lent? That's what it's intended to be. Okay. And I think we can all con admit that if we know people who do that, that there are some people who go through Lent and do give up something because it's a very much uh, it's very much an expression of their commitment their love, their desire to honor God. And then there are others who go through it because it's a ritual that you, you do every year. Both are giving something up, but one is expressing obedience and the other is simply expressing ritual. So you can do sacrifice without obedience, but you can't do obedience without sacrifice. To follow God, to, to commit to his ways is to say, I'm not going to go my own way. I'm not going to do my own thing. I'm not going to call for my own rights. I'm going to follow where God wants me to go. I'm going to give that up. I'm going to sacrifice that. So that's why obedience is, is necessary. Why it's favored. 
over sacrifice. Just to hammer this home just a little bit more, let's take a look real quickly based upon the passage here and what we see here that what sacrifice accomplishes when obedience not is not present. What does that look like? First of all, again, the converse of what we said earlier, it turns sin into something inconsequential. You see it repeatedly throughout the Bible. Cain, Eli's sons, Saul, here in this passage. A sacrifice unaccompanied by obedience minimizes the sin in the mind of the giver. Saul here is is so into this that in verse 13 he does what? He calls his disobedience obedience. Isn't that what he says? I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Because sacrifice was separated from obedience, his disobedience was minimized. So much so that he could call it something it wasn't. You see, what the problem in this passage is, what, what, what the problem with Saul's actions are is simply this. He was trying to offer a sacrifice of something that had been dedicated to God through what's called the Hiram. C-H-E-R-E-M. The Hiram. Okay. And that's defined for us in verse 3. We, we read it earlier. Now go and attack the Amalekites, completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them, kill men, women, infants, and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. I just want to stop for just a second to, to talk about this because this, this is a hard text. Okay. As a as an Old Testament specialist professor, um, I spend a lot of time on this in my in my classes, my Old Testament class, because this is this is hard. When you read God say, if it breathes, kill it. And the text here, what specifically mentions infants? That's hard. How do we wrap our mind around that? How do we understand God's reasoning there? How is that not evil? And they're killing babies animals, everything. It's a difficult command. It's one of those commands, it's probably the command that, that most plays a role in people seeing the difference in the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. If People who take that view, which is thoroughly wrong, but people who take that view will often cite this, this passage or this command in particular to note that distinction. So how do, we, how do we relate to that? How do we even begin to understand it? Well, I don't have the full answer, but I think there are some things that we can recognize and can acknowledge that are important to this reality. Number one is, of course, the seriousness of sin. We are in the custom in our fallen sinful nature to minimize sin. The harem like sacrifice, highlights the seriousness of sin. It, it shows us just how seriously, how dramatically, how significantly God takes it. 
So that's one truth that I think we can lean on. Second is the issue of what we what we call in scholarly circles progressive revelation or multi-layered revelation. What this basically says is that God, in his sovereignty, in his knowledge, in his understanding of people, meets them where they're at. Not just individuals, but cultures. He's going to reveal himself in a way that's consistent with who he is. It's not a wrong revelation of who he is, but he's going to reveal himself in a way that's consistent with who he is, in a way that that culture understands. And that as culture shifts, he's going to alter that revelation of who he is. To what? To meet the changing culture. Again, each revelation is consistent with who he is. Don't, 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 please be very clear about that. The earlier ones are not wrong and then he corrects them later. That's not what I'm saying at all. The earlier ones are different. And in the culture of the Old Testament, especially, how did the people, how did the cultures understand the power, the might, the truthfulness of their God? Through military means. If you were a nation and you had a God, you knew your God was true, you knew your God was powerful, you knew your God was the God. How? He brought you military victory. That was their mindset. That was their worldview. Following the, the, the Greek era and so forth, Hellenism and all the things that were contributed there and on into today, we don't view it that way. We don't, we don't view, we believe God's in control. Why? Because there's only one God. And he's not going to demonstrate his power through necessary military victory because he's God regardless. And we understand that. So there may be times when, you know, the quote, the Christian loses. That's part of God's sovereign will. It's a different worldview. It's a different mindset. So if you're back there in the Old Covenant, and you're back there in that old setting, and that, and that your whole culture, your whole worldview says you express the might of your God through military means, then it's not going to be helpful to you or to those you're trying to connect with or reveal who God is to, it's not going to be helpful for you to say, you know what, Yahweh's wonderful and he has a wonderful plan for your life. They're not going to understand that. That's not how they view it. Just for an example, so you get what I'm saying here. When the spies go into Jericho, Right? They go into Jericho to spy it out to see what's the situation and so forth. They encounter a woman named Rahab. And Rahab hides them, protects them, and so forth while they're there. And why does she do that? Why does she say she hides the spies? If you look at her words, she specifically says, We have heard what your God did to his enemies on the other side of the Jordan. Therefore, I know your God is the true God. Okay. We've heard about your military victory. We've heard about the power, the majesty, all those other things that he displayed in those victories. Therefore, I know he's the true God. That goes to the mindset. New Testament, you don't see those words. 
We see what? Change life. We see those sorts of things. It's a different worldview. And so we need to understand that, that part of what's going on here is God speaking in a way, again, that's consistent with who he is, to a culture so that they can understand it. And we need to understand, thirdly, that wrath is just as much a part of God's nature and character as love is. We look at the cross and we say, oh, what a picture of God's love. And it is. It's an amazing picture of God's love. Do you know what else it is? It's also a complete picture of God's wrath. His judgment on sin. And fourth, we have to acknowledge, obviously, the protection against Canaanite influence. God himself mentions that as a reason. If you let them stick around, they'll lead you astray. Guess what? Israel let them, some of them stick around, and they let them astray. But perhaps the biggest for me, the biggest reality for me, is that even in this judgment, even in these acts, grace was still present. In Genesis chapter 15, God speaking to Abraham, and he's telling Abraham, this land is yours. Everything you see is yours. But then in verse 16, he says, but you can't have it yet. You can't have it yet. Why? He says, because the sin of the Amorites and others there in the land is not yet fully. That's a very important disclosure on God's part. He says, you can't have it yet because what? There's still time for them to respond to me. They haven't gotten to the point yet to where they're beyond hope, to where they can't recognize the truth, to, to where their hearts are so hardened that they don't understand who I am. They haven't gotten there yet. And so I'm going to give them time to, to be able to respond to you and to other things I do in their midst and around them and so forth through through your descendants, I'm going to give them time. I'm going to give them 400 years to respond to my presence, my nature, my character. So 400 years, he said, I'm withholding my hand of judgment so that they might respond to me. So by the time we get to Joshua, we get to Saul, we get to, to this era of Israel's experience, where are the Amalekites? Where are the Amorites? Where are these individuals? They're at a point of no return. The only thing left is judgment because they're not open to grace. Except a few of them are. Rahab, I mentioned, she was, her family was under the harem. They were under this command. And yet God not only saved her, let her live, but what? We're told she became an ancestor of the Messiah himself. That's not a picture of grace. I don't know what is. Going from somebody who's under the curse and the ban of death to being an ancestor of the Messiah. Now that doesn't, those, those points don't fix all the issues, but they should at least help us to gain some perspective that God is very much at work here and God is very much revealing who he is 
in these in these commands, in these difficult commands. If we just take some time to listen and look at everything that's occurring. The second thing that sacrifice accomplishes without obedience is that it reveals how valuable we think ourselves to be. In verse 19, as, as Samuel is, is chastising Saul, he says, so why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on, or your translation may say, pounce on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? The word that's used there, pounce or rush on, is a word that, that suggests his own enrichment. Why did you try and acquire all of this so quickly, so passionately for yourself? And what Samuel is simply saying here is, Saul, your actions reveal the fact that you don't believe that God's provision is good enough. You don't believe that God is really going to take care of you. So you got to what? You got to pounce on and try and collect everything for yourself. This is further uh, accented, highlighted by the fact that verse 12 tells us that what? Saul went and built his own altar, his own monument, where he set up a monument for himself. This is all about Saul. Disobedience is often driven by discontent with what God has given us. It's not good enough, God, so therefore i got to do my own thing here. Obedience values authentic glory of God instead of the cheap imitation. This is Samuel's point. Here in verse 17, when he says what? Why are you driven by a lust for human glory when God has in fact given you a glorious privilege as the head of the tribes of Israel. Why wasn't that good enough for you? Why wasn't God's goodness to you and all he's provided to you good enough for you? Why were you discontent that led to your disobedience? Third, sacrifice without obedience expresses the idea that we only need God Occasionally. We'll go to him when we're in trouble. That's part of the, the issue here at the end where it talks about how Saul says, I've sinned and please please honor me and please please go with me back before the elders. And Samuel says, I'm not interested in that. Because all you're doing what is you're, you're, you're expressing this because you got caught. You're expressing a need for God on occasion when it's convenient for you, when it's helpful to you. That's what sacrifice without obedience does. Obedience, what? It carries that sacrifice through our daily life, through our daily experience. Whereas disobedience leaves that sacrifice back where it was at that moment. It results in further separation from God. If sacrifice is, as we said, grounded in relationship then the failure of it in connection to obedience, what leads to that, that division? You have that in, in God's words to Samuel where he says, what? I regret, I repent of having made Saul king. 
The word doesn't mean that that he didn't see this coming. What the word expresses is, I have a different attitude than I had before. I have an attitude towards Saul that's appropriate to his mindset and his behavior. And as Samuel turns to walk away from Saul after expressing this and communicating his displeasure and God's displeasure, it tells us that Saul reached out to grab him, to stop him, and Samuel's robe ripped off in his hand. And Samuel says, what? That's a prophetic sign. Just as you did that, God has ripped the kingdom from your hand today and given it to somebody else. What is that? It's a separation of relationship. And this is the last time we see Samuel interact with Saul. He's done. He's on his own now. And then sacrifice without obedience communicates rebellion. Just as all the other realities culminated in the new path, in the in the, the repentance, the change of behavior, when you commit sacrifice without obedience, it ultimately leads to a rebellion an all-out rebellion, a rejection of God. That's where we find Saul in the pages that follow, unable to even see God at work. And I want us to understand today, as we read this passage, as we, as we perhaps see ourselves in some of the struggles that Saul's going through and some of the decisions Saul's making, that there is power in obedience. First of all, obedience gives a bigger purpose to our action. Seeking the honor of God rather than just being good or, or showing ourselves off. We see something bigger. We see the world through God's lens. We see the world through, through the perspective of what God can do and who God is to us. When you're obedient, there's a greater meaning to it all. Think of it this way. Maybe you've watched your kids. Maybe you yourself remember some of this. There's an extra joy when your parents acknowledge your obedience. Is there not? Have you not seen that? Little kids' faces light up when their parents say, Man, you did good. I'm so proud of you. Boom. Why? For that moment, the kid sees a bigger picture. My parents are pleased with As we obey God, we get the sense of the bigger picture. God is pleased with me. God takes pleasure in our obedience, Old Testament and New Testament. But there's also power in obedience because obedience is redemptive. We were saved by obedience to the law, just not our obedience. Philippians 2, 8 through 11, Hebrews 10 both tell us that the reason Jesus was able to save us is because he perfectly fulfilled his obedience to the law. So if we're going to follow him, then what? We want to be connected to that mentality, that mindset. Not for the purpose of, again, quote, saving us. Your works are not going to get you saved. 
Christ's works are what? See? But our obedience to Christ connects us to him. It, it helps us to see that we are modeling ourselves after him. We're following in his footsteps. But at the heart of that, remember what we said about obedience. We said it's the attitude, not just the actions. Like a lot of parents, Christian parents, Christy and I, as we raised our kids, one of the things we, we tried to teach them was how to pray. We would tell them why. Bow your head, close your eyes, hold your hands so that you're not doing other things. These are some things that you want to pray for. These are some things you want to say. Here's some things you want to express as you pray. We would guide them through prayers initially and so forth. And a lot of those first prayers are what? They're just rote memory of what mom and dad told us to say. What mom and dad told us to do. But I distinctly remember one of our children. One night we were there and they're saying their, their prayers. And they did their normal spiel, their normal actions, the things we had taught them to do. And then they said, and God, those two key words signaled something significant. And God, in other words, I'm about to say something mom and dad didn't tell me to say. I'm about to express something to you that I wasn't told to express. This is something that occurred to me. This is something that matters to me. This is a, a part of the prayer that communicates I'm really conversing with God now. In our obedience to God, that needs to be our prayer, our mindset. And God, I'm doing this not because I think I'm supposed to. I'm doing this because we're connected. I'm doing this because you matter. I'm doing this because you're more important than anything else to me. The first act of obedience is, of course, repenting of our sins and turning to Christ for salvation. If you're here this morning and you've never experienced that, that's the first step. From there, God begins to mold and shape and teach us and instruct us what that relationship means and what it looks like. And I know many of you are, that you're already in that path, you're already in that journey, but maybe you're struggling with obedience. Maybe you confused sacrifice for obedience, not seeing that they're intertwined. God's laid something on your heart this morning. We invite you to respond. After we pray, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your gift, for your love, for your grace, for your goodness. And I pray that you would move in our hearts and minds this morning. Correct us in those places we've gone that are not where you would have us go. Mold us and shape us according to your purpose and plan. Help us to be repentant when we wander away from obedience. And Lord, as you promised in 1 John 1, 9, we know you're faithful and just to forgive us in those times, in those moments. Use this time, Lord, to draw us, to direct us, and guide us according to your purpose. In Christ's name I pray.